Whether this is her first Mother's Day or her 40th, she deserves more. Shop tons of stunning on-trend jewelry for every budget at Diamonds Direct. Diamond fashion jewelry, beautiful birthstones, everyday pearls, starting at just $200. Commemorate the real loves of her life with a gorgeous pendant featuring the birthstone of the one who made her mom. This Mother's Day, Diamonds Direct is everything you need to say thank you. Diamonds Direct, your love, our passion. Online at DiamondsDirect.com. The Elevation with Stephen Furtick podcast was created with you in mind. This is a podcast for those feeling discouraged or needing guidance from God. Together in this podcast, we'll dive deep into scripture, uncover the powerful truths that will help you rise above your limitations and embrace your full potential. We're here to equip you with the tools you need to conquer life's challenges. Listen to Elevation with Stephen Furtick every Sunday and Friday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Diosa. And I'm Mala. We are the creators of Locatora Radio, a radiophonic novella, which is a fancy way of saying a, a podcast. podcast. Welcome to Locatora Radio Season 9. Love, Love at first, first listen. listen. We're older, we're wiser, and we're podcasting through a new decade of our lives. This season, we're falling in love with podcasting all over again. And getting to the heart of our stories. We're going places we've never gone before, and we're bringing you along with us. With new segments, correspondence, and a brand new sound. Season 9 is kicking off with an intimate interview with Grammy Award-winning singer-songwriter Natalia Laforcade. What's giving you hope right now? Well, when I see what music does to people it gives me a lot of hope if you liked locatora before you're gonna love season nine subscribe to our show and you'll see why locatora is your prima's favorite podcast listen to locatora radio as part of the michael Tura podcast network available on the iHeartRadio app apple podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts there's people who are dealing with chronic illnesses there's people who are dealing with divorce there's people who are dealing with a betrayal of some kind, um, people who are dealing with changing their minds about something that they felt total conviction in. And in all of those cases, you see this same delightful expression, which is that they deepen their understanding of who they were as a result of going through the change. Welcome to the Psychology Podcast. Today, we welcome Maya Shankar to the show. Maya is a cognitive scientist and the creator and host of the podcast, A Slight Change of Plans which was awarded as the best show of 2021 by Apple and received an Ambi Award from the Podcast Academy in 2022. Maya has a postdoctoral fellowship in cognitive neuroscience from Stanford and a PhD in cognitive psychology from Oxford. She's a graduate of the Juilliard School of Music's pre-college program, where she was a private violin student of Itzhak Perlman. In this episode, I talked to Maya about change. Humans have a desire to attach roles to identities. But when events disrupt that, we may feel unsure of who we are. Having gone through huge shifts herself, Maya shares with us ways in which we can reconfigure our identities and pivot to pursue our goals in different ways. Change can be disorienting, but it can also afford us a deeper understanding of ourselves and afford a lot of potential for growth. Maya also believes that growth is an opportunity to re-examine our long-held beliefs and values. We also touch on the topics of cognitive science, mindfulness, awe, and hope. I really enjoyed this chat. Maya and I go way back to Yale with grad school days for me, and she was an undergraduate. She was always a bright light with so much potential, and now she is really realizing her potential. I couldn't be more proud of her and more excited to share with you this chat with Maya Shankar. 
Maya Shankar, it's so unbelievably amazing having you on the Psychology Podcast. <laughs> it's great to be here, Scott. We go way back. <laughs> we really do. We really do. We're talking decades. 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 It's, no. Oof. it's crazy. Uh, I feel like there's always a bright light surrounding you. You always had this bright aura, even, oh. even back then. <laughs> I, it, it, was, it was striking to me. It was striking to me. I believe you would eat in the, in the Hall of Graduate Studies, I think, once or something. And I remember... Wow, there's a lot of lightness. <laughs> oh, that's that's like maybe the nicest thing anyone's ever said. Thank you for for sharing that. Well, I do, I do hope that I am bringing some positivity to the places that I go. So that's yeah. wonderful to hear. Yeah. Well, you had a great reputation even back then as a budding cognitive scientist. But you know, your whole life in in context is so fascinating and so inspiring and so uh, informative to the rest of us about how to deal with change and how to deal with how to deal with change with grace and with with power and uh, agency, you know something that I, I I think is is really cool is that you were a violinist growing up, and I don't know if I ever told you my my grandfather was a cellist in the Philadelphia Orchestra. Oh wow, I did not know that. <laughs> yeah, I think I've heard of yeah. that orchestra before. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes. I don't know. He it's was, only one of the there. best in the in the world. <laughs> yes, he was the last one who was hired by Ormandy and Sadakovsky together. Wow, amazing! Yeah, fifty years. He was there fifty years. He was in Fantasia. The original Fantasia, but so that is so cool that you were um, a violinist and you studied with Itzhak Perlman. Is that right? Yep. And then, and then you had a slight change of plans, <laughs> to, to put it mildly. At one point, can you just kind of tell that story a little bit? Yeah, as you said, from the time I was really young, I mean, the violin was absolutely the centerpiece of my life. I mean, every day when I woke up as a little kid, I started playing when I was six. Mm. I just felt drawn to it. And it felt like my primary mission and purpose in life was to become better at the violin. So mm -hmm. I was that kid who was like running home from the bus stop after school, instantly practicing. My parents had, you know, I'm the youngest of four kids. So obviously they had to like push us to do lots of things that we kids didn't want to do. But for whatever reason, they never had to really push me to practice, which was kind of amazing. They weren't quite sure where this motivation and love was coming from. But I developed a very deep attachment to the instrument very quickly. And when I was nine, uh, things got a lot more intense because I auditioned for the Juilliard School of Music in New York. And my family lived in Connecticut. So every Saturday, my mom and I would wake up at 4.30 in the morning and mm. catch a train from Connecticut to New York. Wow. I would have about 10 hours of classes there every every Saturday, come home at like 9 or 10 p.m. And I didn't mind it because I loved it, right? Like these were my people, right? These like yeah. fellow musician kids <laughs> were, were totally mm -hmm. my people. And so mm -hmm. it was, yeah, it was like the light of my life, you know, starting from, from that young age. And then, like you noted, uh, when I was 15, I had a slight change of plans. Um, I was, mm -hmm. you know, hopefully on the up and up, right? Perlman had just taken me on as his student a year or two prior. That really gave me the vote of confidence I needed in such a competitive, like uber competitive space to feel like I maybe had what it took to go pro. And then mm -hmm. I overstretched my finger on a single note mm -hmm. and I heard a popping sound and the yeah. popping sound was not a string on my violin. It was a tendon in my hand. And after a very complicated medical saga, I was told by doctors I could never play again. So it was really that one moment that ended my dreams forever of becoming mm -hmm. of becoming a violinist. Unbelievable. And yet, 
you didn't give up on life. I mean, how did you translate into cognitive science? You know, how did that, you know, what, what happened in that gap between that incident happening and you thinking, well, maybe I want to, maybe I'm interested in psychology. Yeah. I mean, I was, first of all, I was definitely the very like sad, angsty teenager. So mm-hmm. it's easy for me to smile about it now. But certainly back in the day, I was like, oh my God, this is the worst thing. What am I going to do? And mm-hmm. and I experienced, I experienced a huge loss of identity, which I was not expecting. So I was expecting that I would feel the loss of the instrument. I was not expecting that I would feel the loss of myself. Because I think, especially when we're young and we're not constantly reflecting on who we are, what makes us who we are, we're not always coding, yeah, what constitutes our identity. And it it turned out that a violin had played a huge role in defining who I was as a person. And so when I lost Mm -hmm. it, I really did feel like I'd lost a huge part of myself. And I experienced what what I've now come to learn is known as identity paralysis. So it's a term in psychology, and it refers to this idea of really feeling stuck where and paralyzed because you have been something in the past, that thing is taken away, and now you're kind of stuck in place and you're not really sure what the next steps are. And so it took me a long time to break free from identity paralysis and start exploring other things. Um, for me, it was just an accident that that led me to stumble upon cognitive science and psychology. The summer before college, I was in my counterfactual life of being a violinist. I was supposed to be in China with my classmates touring in Shanghai and, and whatnot. And so I was like, you know, imagining how awesome their summer was. And I was at home <laughs> just perusing my parents' bookshelf in their basement. And I stumbled upon a pop science book by Steven Pinker called The Language Instinct. Oh, yeah. And that, I'm sure you've read it. It's like that book yeah. changed my life because yeah. until I read, so, so The Language Instinct details the marvelous abilities that we have as humans to both comprehend and uh, produce language. And this was a skill that up until that point in my life, I'd fully taken for granted, never really even thought Mm -hmm. about. And when Pinker pulled back the curtain and showed just how complicated, how complex, like beautifully rich the cognitive machinery is that's operating behind the scenes that gives rise to this incredible ability. I mean, I was awestruck, Scott. (laughs) Maybe you've Mm. had this experience at some point. It's like, like you, I really felt like I was in awe of this organ, right? Like, I cannot believe what the mind is capable of. And then you start asking all sorts of other questions, like, well, if this is what's underlying language, I mean, what underlies all of the other marvelous things that humans could do? Like, what's going on when Taylor Swift writes yet another amazing hit? Like, how is happening in her brain <laughs> when that's going on? And so I ju- it just lit up a curiosity in me about how it is that our minds work, how we make decisions, how we develop our attitudes and beliefs about the world, how our visual systems work. I mean, I, it was just like, I felt like I was a kid in a candy store again. And that was such a wonderful thing to be gifted at that stage in my life because there had been a few years of listlessness and, and not really knowing if I could ever love anything as much as I love the violin. And to be kind of handed this whole area of inquiry, looking back, I just feel so lucky that I just happened to stumble upon that book. Yeah. Go pop science books, by the way. I feel like they get a really bad rap because <laughs> they're <laughs> pop science books. They get like a really uh... bad, bad rap because like, oh, you know, this thing isn't fully represented. And, and like, totally fair. There's definitely been very fair criticisms. But in terms of lighting up the imagination and pulling new people into a discipline, 
I am such a fan of popular science books. Well, Steven Pinker is unique in that space because his books are also uh, very rigorous. Yes, yes. I mean, very I, I would say my <laughs> my senior year of high school, the book that got me really interested in cognitive science was How the Mind Works by Steven Pinker. So that's another funny terrific that, one. Yeah. yeah. Oh yeah, my gosh, that, that was my second read. <laughs> <laughs> um, and uh, the, his book in language. I mean, that's a pretty dense book. I wouldn't call. I wouldn't even call it pop psych. Yeah, <laughs> I mean. A, to be fair, like, again, as this, un- as this, like, high school senior, you know, I just skipped the parts I didn't understand that were too yeah. technical for me, where he was doing all this technical. semantic and sy- yeah. syntactic modeling and stuff. Yeah. But it was just enough to, like, again, whet the appetite. And I think, especially when it comes to passion finding, like, what, it, what do we want something to do to us? We want it to make us curious in some way. Mm-hmm. And that's what I found when I read that book. I was curious. Yeah, he, he's Stephen's so good at that, at showing his own curiosity and making that us curious as well. So you went to Yale, you studied cognitive science. Did you study with Laurie Santos? I did. <laughs> so Laurie, yeah, Laurie was my undergrad advisor. She's known me since I was 17 and wow. um, is just a lifelong friend. So, you know, she was at my wedding. She's advised me, advised me on every major <laughs> life decision I've made. I'm wow. so indebted to Laurie. It's kind of a funny story because, you know, I was this very, very insecure freshman coming to Yale, mm. feeling loads of imposter syndrome because I'm thinking, OK, I got into this college in the first place because of my ability to play the violin. Now I can't play the violin. So mm. what do I have to offer? I have nothing to offer. So I, I definitely was suffering from low self-confidence. And I remember going to this orientation for her primate cognition lab. Um, so she had a monkey lab. And you know this, right? Like down at, at the hospital. And yeah. I came into the room and it was overflowing, Scott. I was I was extra intimidated because I see all these seniors and juniors and they're signing up for these very limited number of spots. And I remember thinking, OK, I'm totally screwed because what are the chances she gives the freshman the spot? So I remember yeah. there was a, a short application form we had to fill out. And I just sold my soul on this application. I was like, you can have my unborn children. I will do the 4.30 a.m. shifts on Saturday morning in New Haven in the dead of winter. Like I will do whatever it takes. Just please take a chance on me. And I was so lucky because she took a chance on me. And that ended up being the like research, which is already a gift for any undergrad to get to do, right? Like research and just immersing myself in the world of cognitive science became the focus of my undergrad time. And I think without Lori's mentorship, that just would never have happened. That would never have mm-hmm. been possible. And so I, I feel I feel like it was a really important part of my transition. And, and it also helped me, it, it helped build a through line for me in terms of what it is that brings me passion. So we talked earlier about identity paralysis and one thing that I've learned since then and in, in making my podcast A Slight Change of Plans is that our desire to attach our identities to something is not going anywhere. I think it's a, a very core part of hu- who we are as human beings to want to be something, to do something, to be attached to, to something that makes us us. And so it's impossible, I think, for us to escape that very innate desire. It gives us meaning and purpose and fulfillment in this world to have these strong identities. But what I learned is that you can be choosy about what you anchor your identity to. And Mm -hmm. I think as a kid, I had made the mistake of, well, not necessarily a mistake, but, you know, there's just different ways of seeing your identity. I had attached my my identity to being a violinist, first and foremost. So like I was a violinist Mm -hmm. and then secondarily I was Maya. And what I've learned since then is that we can instead anchor our identities to what lights us up 
about the things that we do, what underlies the the pursuits that that we love. And that empowers us with a much more durable, reliable, anchored identity, such that when the thing is taken away from you, you at least have that underlying trait you can fall back on. And so in my particular case, what this looked like is realizing, oh, okay, a desire. When I looked back on my time as a young violinist, I realized that what I loved was the human connections that form through music, you know, and the Mm -hmm. fact that I could forge these incredibly deep emotional connections with people that I'd never met before, whether it was my chamber musician partners, whether it was an orchestra, whether it was the audience that I was playing for. I mean, it was, it was, it's kind of an amazing, magical experience, right? To go on a stage and not know anyone and suddenly feel things together. And Mm -hmm. when I realized that that at the end of the day, if you stripped away all the superficial features of the violin, if you, if you, if I thought deeply, okay, like, what is it that makes me really love the violin? It was that. It was human connection. What that meant is that I could try to find my love of human connection elsewhere. Yeah. And um, I absolutely found it in cognitive science, like studying the science of human behavior and, and emotions and decision making. Yeah. And then, you know, with my podcast, connecting with people through the interviews. And so it's given me a really powerful through line over a course of my life, which has had so many disparate parts, right? It, it looks all very, dis- mm-hmm. it looks very disjointed, right? It's like, she's a violinist, then she was a cognitive scientist, then she's a public policy person, then she, you know, and so I was like, now she's a podcaster. So it, it, there's a lot of jumping around, but I would urge your listeners to ask themselves what it is that they love about the things they do and to see if they can reconfigure their identities to anchor to those things rather than so so rather than it being about what they do anchoring their identities to why they do it you propose three really 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 um thought provoking i would even call them coaching powerful coaching questions you know that i think coaches who are listening to our podcast can use with their clients as well to help people figure out how to move forward when they feel like the world is shifting beneath their feet. Another question you ask is, you know, how does this change change what you're capable of? Can you kind of talk a little bit about that? Yeah, I think, I mean, one cognitive fallacy that we we fall prey to is that we believe that the person experiencing, the person that we are right now is going to be the same person confronting the challenges of an unexpected change. But what we fail to appreciate when we do that kind of mental calculation is that we will actually change considerably as a result of a change, as a result of just normal living and, and evolution and development, right? And so it's actually important for us to keep a really open mind about what those transformations can look like, because I think one of the reasons why we get so scared in the face of change is that we feel so unprepared for the moment. It's like whatever mm-hmm. capabilities and resources that we have in this moment it feels like that's not going to get me through this horrible thing that's just happened or this extremely challenging thing that's going to happen. But we know from research that people change a lot more than they think they will or that they regularly surprise themselves with how they responded differently to a situation than they thought they would. Mm. You know, you know that this concept, the end of history illusion, where we fully acknowledge that we've changed considerably in the past, but we fail to appreciate that will change in the future. <laughs> so there's definitely, you know, an inconsistency yeah. there. Uh, we're like, oh, yeah, no, definitely. I'm way different than I was in my 20s. And then it's like, but in my 40s, I'll probably be about the same. You know, we just assume that who Such we are right point. now is the is the stable version yeah. of us. And I yeah. think I think this is just a theory I have that really big changes in our lives, like the mm. flip your world upside down changes can accelerate the, those internal shifts, can accelerate the internal changes that we experience as people. and so. On my podcast, I've interviewed so many different people about 
mm-hmm. who have run up against various obstacles and and hardship. And in particular, this one woman, Christine Ha, she uh, went permanently blind in her early 20s as a result of a autoimmune condition. And at the time, she was just cooking recreationally, and she, and she was really mourning the loss of independence that she had. And and when she imagined her future, it just felt so grim. And she totally surprised herself in terms of the capabilities that she had, in terms of the new mm-hmm. passions she developed, in terms of her thirst for learning and and trying to actually overcome challenges, that she ended up becoming a world-renowned chef who won a season of MasterChef, the TV show. She owns two restaurants in Texas. And what's so fascinating about her episode, so it's called A Blind Cook Becomes a Master Chef, (laughs) the episode. What's so amazing about her experience is that she taps into new parts of her personality that she almost didn't know existed along the way. And that fills me with a tremendous amount of hope, Scott, because Mm. we feel at any given moment in time that not only will we not change, but that we have a fairly good grasp of who we are as people, right? What we're capable of, what our beliefs are, what our perspectives are. And like anything else in the world, we just have a small set of data points that we've collected over time based on the random set of experiences and circumstances that we've been in. And what that means is we're not really getting a full 360 degree view of everything that we are. And so one thing that can help build our resilience in the face of change, especially unexpected or unwanted change, is just the belief, this underlying belief that new parts of yourself may be revealed to you as part yes. of that process. And maybe you don't love everything that you see, right? It's not, I'm not trying to sugarcoat anything. There might be parts of mm-hmm. you that you are revealed, but at a minimum, you will develop a greater understanding of yourself. And then you have more to work with in terms of, you know, who you are as a person and and the kind of internal work you do moving forward. And so that has been a very uplifting message across the episodes that I've done on a, interviews that I've done on a slight change of plans where stories look vastly different. You know, mm-hmm. we there's people who are, have, are dealing with chronic illnesses. There's people who are dealing with divorce, there's people who are dealing with a betrayal of some kind, um, people who are dealing with changing their minds about something that they felt total conviction in. And in all of those cases, you see the same delightful expression, which is that they deepen their understanding of who they were as a result of going through the change. Mm, I love it. You're really speaking my language. Recently wrote a, did a workbook for post-traumatic growth is my most recent book. And I see a lot of linkages between what you're talking about in the field of post-traumatic growth. Absolutely. Not all change of plans are negative, obviously. I, I think a lot of people aren't aware of the much less talked about field of post-ostatic growth. So inspiration can cause huge changes in one's worldview. I'm uh, very interested in education and how kids' ideas of their own capacities can radically change once they're inspired to realize a future dream, for instance. Um, so that's th- there could be slight change of plans that um, can come about from a shift in one's own just idea of possibility, right? Absolutely. And, you know, I I was listening to your interview with Dacher Keltner about the science of awe, which I loved. And I I think that the, that we all have access to this kind of awe in our day-to-day lives, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, I think typically we think about sources of awe as being limited to nature and music, you know, that beautiful vista or sunset or a piece of Beethoven. But Dacker articulates many other pillars, uh, many other sources of awe that I think I had overlooked. So, for example, moral beauty is a huge source of of awe, right? And 
it's the feeling that you get when you feel so moved by the character and generosity and kindness and compassion or overcoming of another person. And what was so interesting to me about learning about something like moral beauty is that it turns out that's the form of awe that I as a person experience the most. That is my form of awe. Much I awe. feel much more moved by human generosity, for example, than I do by a beautiful sunset. And he helped mm. me see like, okay, I'm not like an aweless person just because I enjoy the vista a little bit less <laughs> than the next person. Mm. It's just I have a different source. Um, that's my primary source. Yeah. And I have absolutely had changes of plan that were over time inspired by just these small mm. moments in life where you see someone's courage or you see their vulnerability or you see them helping a stranger. I mean, the ones I'm most touched by are like little children <laughs> who mm. are so kind or, or stand up to the bully and protect their friend. I mean, all those moments can be yes. really, really awe-inspiring and shape who you want to be as a person. Yes, yes. Well, you 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 are speaking my language. I, I I'm or I'm speaking your language because it's a uh, uh, the idea that we can change and grow is a found a, a foundational assumption of the humanistic psychologist, mm -hmm. which I um I, I kind of identify now as a cognitive humanistic psychologist. I've invented that I love phrase, that. but yeah. thank you, thank you. It's combining cognitive science with humanistic psychology, but just the notion that you just start with that assumption that humans are capable of change. That's a powerful assumption to just begin with. And it's amazing to me, a lot of, even on the, the psychological literature papers and and discussions, there's some assumptions that are kind of built in that, that don't have growth built in. And I'll give you a specific example because I love how you talk about values. And I love the way you talk about values. You talk about how when we have these kinds of not just slight change of plans, but major <laughs> change of plans. Obviously, it's ironic when you say, say slight change of <laughs> yes, plans. Yes, it's meant to be cheeky. Yes, because these people are experiencing extraordinary changes. These people are. <laughs> all the examples you just gave me are not slight yeah. change of plans. But you talk about how a question you can ask is, how might this change change what you value? Just acknowledging that we're allowed to change our values, I think, is a big insight because values, the values literature, I feel like the way it's talked about sometimes is there's something very sacred about your, you know, like discover what your values are. And then like, it's the most sacred thing in the world and make sure you protect it at all costs. And that's a different kind of model than I feel like your model, you know, and uh, so talk about that a little bit. I love that you raised this because one conversation I had on a slight change of plans, which was with the professor, Adam Grant, he had just released this book, Think yeah. Again. I'm sure many of your listeners have followed his scholarship and, and amazing writing. Mm -hmm. And um, I invited him on so we could talk about the science of changing minds. And we actually got into a back and forth on this topic because oh, wow. he was talking about changing, you know, we should be willing to update our beliefs and ideas about things. And I was arguing we really should be willing to update our values because yeah. it's a harder mountain to climb, absolutely, to try to change values, right? Yeah. But if we are successful in changing our values, it can have a truly transformative impact on our lives, right? In terms of what we care about. But it does take more intentionality because your value systems tend to be your foundation, right? It's what you've grown mm -hmm. up with. It's what your culture is teaching you. It's what you hold most sacred. And so to challenge that can be a very uncomfortable process. But I think it's an excellent cognitive process to go through. Like it's uncomfortable for a reason, which is that you're in some sense holding some of these values blindly. And if they really are worthy of upholding, you'll be convinced on the other end that that's a value you want to uphold, you want to uphold, but you may as well poke at it a little bit just to make sure that it's stood the test of time, that it still aligns with who you are. I think that it aligns with what society is like. I mean, I think yeah. sometimes we can be hesitant to 
jettison values because we think it speaks poorly to the kind of decision makers we are, the kind of people that we are. But what that fails to appreciate is that circumstances change. Information changes. Uh, Mm. We're allowed to update our points of view based on new information. And so it's not cowardly to drop a value from your system if it no longer aligns with your current way of thinking or if new information has come out that challenges that value. And so this Mm. speaks more broadly, I think, to the literature saying that we can benefit a lot by not too closely tethering our identities to our values. Um, because that can sometimes keep us locked in. It can prevent us from changing our minds when we really should in the face of empirical evidence. It can make us feel embarrassed if we do change our minds. Like, again, we don't have strong convictions when in actuality, it should be a very natural part of human discourse and dialogue for each side to change their minds or update their way of thinking. I have a few follow-ups to that. One is, did you uh, did you encourage Adam to rethink his uh, Yes, he <laughs> was willing. This is it? such a fun conversation because he did say yes. that he was willing to rethink this this uh, viewpoint Good. on value. So, yeah, I, I, awesome. it was such a fun uh, conversation because it was always so cool. meta along the way. Because it was, mm. you know, I, I would pull coals, you know, poke at something or say, ah, I'm not yeah. sure I t- totally agree with you or just, you know, I disagree on this thing. And then, you know, he's just written this book on the importance of thinking again. Mm. So I got Adam with his most open mind. <laughs> Because <laughs> you got to yes. practice what you preach, right? <laughs> yes. When he came, he came to my podcast to talk about it, and he asked me, he said, "Scott, what's the one thing you think uh, maybe I should rethink?" And I was like, "Wow, that's what a great question!" What like, did you tell good, him? Good, I'm curious. Well, we have a little bit of a disagreement about, but it turned out to not really be a disagreement. It's funny sometimes when you just actually discuss it, you're like, "Oh, actually, we probably do agree." But um, I view giving more as like a way of being. Um, in the world. And I felt like his, his version of giving is very strategic. It's mm. like, uh, we give and then if we give, we can be more successful, you know? And it's, I'm like, but that's not the, the like you should, that I don't like thinking of it in such mechanical terms, you know? Like, yeah. <laughs> well, it's so interesting you raised this. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, yeah, no, I absolutely know what you mean, Scott. And I, this is reminding me of another conversation that I, I recently had. It's an episode that just came out with the meditation scientist, Dr. Richie Davidson. Um, oh, so yeah, he's Richard one of the Davidson, pi- yeah. yeah he's one of the pioneers in meditation science. He was one of the first neuroscientists to take the study of meditation seriously and actually run rigorous randomized control trials in labs around this topic that at the time no one was taking seriously. So anyway, I'm a huge Richie fan. His research is amazing. He does a great job at distilling you know fact from fiction <laughs> uh, when it comes to all that's put out there about meditation. But my favorite part of my conversation with him was when I asked him, what, one thing I gleaned from reading his book is that meditation and mindfulness have been really bastardized in the Western world so that it's, mm-hmm. it's, it's, a, it's a life hack, right? It's like we meditate mm-hmm. so that we can be more efficient, we can be more productive, we can be more, we can have better quality sleep so that we can less do anxiety. Right, less anxiety, mm-hmm. right? It's a mm-hmm. self-help yeah. tool. And yes. I don't yes. think there's anything wrong with wanting to increase your own well-being. I'm not being critical of that. That wasn't the original purpose. Exactly. So that's what I was bringing up with him is that if you look back at the history, right, the origin Mm -hmm. story of meditation, it was very much other focused. The the goal of meditation was to make people better for others, not for themselves. Right. So it was very much focused on, you know, compassion towards others, loving kindness, you know, empathy and over time, I mean, he, I, I know in the field, I kind of call it like Mick mindfulness, like do the five minute intervention, you'll feel yes, 32% yes. less anxious. <laughs> but one thing I was talking about with Richie is that when we reorient ourselves 
and anchor our intention around meditation to better align with the true origin story of meditation. Ironically, we might find that it's actually more effective at doing all the life life hacky stuff. <laughs> and mm-hmm. he was saying that at the start of every meditation he does, he actually gives himself a reminder that he's not just doing this practice for himself, he's doing it for others. And mm-hmm. we were both speculating that when you articulate an intention like that, it can absolutely affect the quality of the meditation, right? It can affect the experience, the transcendent experience that, and again, you're more of an expert on this stuff than I am, but I believe the intention can really change the experience you have. And so, I don't know, I I took that lesson with me, which was, you know, we see this happening in a lot of spaces, like you Mm. should be self-compassionate because it'll help you in this way. You should be more empathetic because it'll help you in that way. And I really think we're all better off if we think of ourselves as part of a larger whole and that we are committing to these behavioral practices because it just leads us to be better citizens to one another. I think that's right. And and the original, you know, if you look at the Buddhas, right, and you just you just read a lot of uh mindfulness, you know, what is mindfulness all about from an Eastern philosopher's perspective? Um, it's all about the curiosity. You you go in with no goal. It's not like you're going in with a goal. You're yeah. going in with like the curiosity to understand your mind today. And that's it. That's yep. it. And and I find that's a better way of going into it than like you because then people put so much stress on the side. My friends are like, I try and I suck at it. It's like <laughs> it's not a matter of being good or being bad. You know, like you're you're going into it and you're just like, where's my mind today? You know, to, to get the true uh, reality uh, understanding of the nature of self mm-hmm. is is. I mean, I guess that is a goal. I, I guess you can't get away with that, having no goals whatsoever. Yeah. But to me, but maybe you make the goal different, right? So yeah, in the same way yeah. that we talked about much earlier in the conversation, that our desire to have an identity isn't going anywhere. But maybe we ought to anchor mm-hmm. identities to not to what we do, but why we do it. In this particular case, we can mm-hmm. anchor our goal to be better to others and. That might mm. just take the pressure off too, right? Which is, that's a gradual, longer term journey and process. And even just being intentional about being kind to others can make us kinder. And so yeah, I really like that. And I, and, but I do think you're, the cautionary tale from you know, what you shared with Adam is very real. I was mm. actually talking about this with, with Dacker recently in the, in the context of awe. Now awe is being commodified. It's a, oh, if you yeah. experience, you know, the intention of an awe-inspiring experience, I believe, mm-hmm. is to make us feel that we are smaller, that we are part of a broader, bigger whole, to help mm-hmm. reduce feelings of narcissism and self-obsession and to make us feel more connected to the broader ecosystems that we operate and to make us feel more connected to the, the broader whole. And so I do see a huge irony in practicing, quote, moments of awe just so that we experience the internal narcissistic boost in well-being. <laughs> you know, I, I I would love for us to focus more on how it makes us feel with respect to connectedness to others. Well, beautiful. It's absolutely beautiful. And I and I would I would yes end that. You know, yes and the more you practice all, I think it it reminds us that there's something greater beyond ourselves. Absolutely. I think we need to remind ourselves of that from time. We need to experience it to remember that there is another realm, another dimension of transcendence that is not our ordinary consciousness. Yes. But our ordinary consciousness can to, so easily make us forget that. Yes. You know? No, I, I completely agree. So I Anyway, I think that's a that's a wonderful thing for all of us to rethink. So I appreciate you putting it back on my radar. Awesome. I had thought of another thing when you were talking about the value. The values one is a really uh, 
deeply existential one. And I like going there. I like going to the existential humanistic level. <laughs> um, you know, because the thing with the, re- you can rethink your favorite breakfast. You can rethink, you know, a lot of things. But when we start talking about saying to people that you're allowed to change your values, there's some really interesting research showing that most people identify their real self with their values. The thing I think that there's a great fear of is, well, if I'm not anchor, you know, who am I? Who am I individually from others? You know, and there's some things that are more central to that than others. I think values is is one of the most, if not the most central thing that people anchor themselves to, yeah. to be able to have a sense of self to begin with. No, it's a, it's an excellent point. And again, to be very clear, right, I'm not arguing that we should be changing our values every day, then in some sense, they stop <laughs> becoming values, right? But they yeah, should be yeah. things that we that are up for revision occasionally. And I think there's a couple mm-hmm. thought experiments that you can ask yourself to bring your values into the light and figure out whether you still believe in them. So one thing that can help create distance between you and your values is to imagine that you were born during a different period of time, that you were born mm-hmm. into a different family, that you were born into a different culture. How would your values be different than what they are right now? And mm-hmm. that allows you to see that maybe the values you hold today aren't as sacred as you might think because they were extremely circumstance dependent. Now, there are some values that I feel should be non-negotiable, like don't <laughs> cause suffering, <laughs> you know, needlessly, right? Those are the sorts of things that probably transcend uh, a lot of these frameworks I've just given you, which is, you know, if you pulled someone in the 1700s, they're probably going to say, yeah, I also think human suffering is an ill. We don't want to introduce more of that. Um, But when it comes to other kinds kinds of values, I think they're much more subject to these sociocultural factors. And if we can engage in that thought experiment, I mean, this is something that Adam talks in his book where we transport ourselves to different periods of time or different geographic locations or to different families, then all of a sudden we see our values as being a bit more negotiable than we might have otherwise. You also realize that some of your values, like, a lot of the values we hold, we didn't really consciously build a relationship with those values. We just kind of inherited them by default for whatever reason. Mm. They're not all the result of deliberate cognitive effort that I believe X or Y thing. And so a lot of our values, if you actually, you know, do the examination, you'll realize a lot of your values haven't really been scrutinized by you. (laughs) You've just believed Mm. them, right? And I think we can see that in terms of I mean, if you if you look at a personal level, right, I'm thinking about, say, public policies that I was like super pro in 2008, let's say. And now I've realized, wait a second, they're a lot more complicated than I thought before. And it's okay to, you know, shift. You can also shift your values over time so that you start you don't believe in something that you once did. So, yeah. Oh, definitely. I see that very much in the political realm. Uh, Me and a lot of my friends, I feel like have really thought more than we ever have thought before about where we actually stand politically. Like, I don't feel like I've ever really thought about it as much as I have the last three years yeah, <laughs> you yeah. know? With, the, with greater political polarization. I'm like, Oh, I was raised in a Hindu household. And I remember every summer mm. we would go visit my grandmother in India. She was a deeply, deeply spiritual person and mm. would pray for eight hours a day. I would sit next to her and try to learn all of the different Hindu chants and religious chants. Mm. And I remember her telling me, you know, I believe that everyone is praying to the same God. We all just see different expressions of it. And there was an open mindedness to her belief system right from the outset as she seemed to acknowledge, like, I could have been born in a different country and been exposed to a very Mm -hmm. different set of religious beliefs. And so I'm not going to be super self-righteous about mine. I'm going to embrace that there may be diversity in this landscape. 
And I think that stayed with Love me. Love that. Yeah. It's beautiful. Um, so, so much of this to me comes down to, as you talk about, um, not having cognitive closure, having a fle- more flexible mindset as opposed to a rigid mindset. I mean, that's like a thread that runs through all of this. If you yeah. can, if you can have more flexible, uh, if you can have a more flexible mindset, it kind of will lead to all these other things. And it's um, really hard, by the yeah. way. I mean, I in oh, part, yeah. I started a slight change of plans, which is like the love of my life, other than my husband, mm-hmm. <laughs> because mm-hmm. I'm really bad at change. I I don't, I'm a, I'm a creature of habit. I don't like change. Sometimes even positive changes throw me for a loop because I just don't like the disorientation <laughs> that comes along with new circumstances. And I am the type of person that naturally seeks a lot of cognitive closure. And so part of my process of discovery with the show is figuring out how I can embrace a more nimble, malleable, more open mind. (laughs) And it's been a journey, but I think it's working. Like I actually do feel that I am less wedded to my internal life scripts that I've written for myself and my, you know, five and 10 year and 15 year plans. I mean, I don't even, that one sign of success for making this show is I literally don't even make the five-year plan anymore in my head. Mm. I'm like one year maximum. That's the only, that's the (laughs) runway that I have in my head. And so um, it's really been a process because I think, again, I am, this is where I, I hope listeners really resonate with me because like they hear themselves in my questioning line of questioning, which is like, but I hate change <laughs> or like, you know, but it's really hard to not want to know all the answers or to have that kind of closure, to not have that kind of closure. But I think I've definitely learned a lot from both the people who shared their, shared their personal stories with me on the show. And then, of course, also the the expert scientists who have shown us mm-hmm. where the science corroborates, you know, our, our theories and whatnot. Well, I love your podcast, and I'm very proud of you. I think it's so funny that here we are, me, you, and Laurie <laughs> Santos. We all now we're all podcasters. We're all podcasters. <laughs> Who would have thought 20 years ago? <laughs> I, yeah, we is, didn't even know podcasting was a thing. So yeah, this is we where could never we all dre- would end up. We could never have dreamt of this. We didn't even know it was mm-hmm. going to be a thing. No, I think I think your podcast is incredible, and uh, and you you bring so much so much class to it. Mm, so much class. <laughs> I don't know what the rules are. Uh, I think it's close. I don't think I said magic, but it's something similar to that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's <laughs> something similar. Yeah. I really wanted to to prepare for this interview, so I talked to my friend who was in the audience. I told him oh, to take notes so of your talk nice. <laughs> and to write down this quote. So anyway, yeah, yeah. So I think this speaks to, I mean, to the your point about yeah. cognitive closure, right? Yeah. One of the people that I interviewed on a slight change of plans. Her name is Florence Williams, and mm-hmm. she had been in a decades long marriage felt very stable and content. And Mm. one night she discovers that her husband has been having an affair, like out of the clear Mm. blue sky, sky totally disorients her. She has such physical manifestations of grief. I mean, she develops an autoimmune disorder. Mm. She's incredibly anxious. She becomes an insomniac. I mean, she really internalizes her heartbreak. And because she's a science journalist, she goes on this year-long quest to try to figure out how she can hack her heartbreak, you know, like how she can science her way out of this horrible state. And she tries all sorts of interventions, Scott. It's, I mean, it's hilarious. She has like this incredible toolbox. It's like, okay, I'm going to all my way out of heartbreak. Okay, I'm going to do this. I'm going to do that. I'm going to do six different types of therapy. 
And by the end of the year, I mean, obviously, there's been some incremental progress. But the most humbling lesson that she learns from all of it is that the actual solution to her heartbreak is needing less cognitive closure, being Mm. more open to mystery, more open to uncertainty, more open to discovery. And Florence tracks these changes over the course of her journey where she said, you know, in the beginning, I was like the 15-year planner. You know, I was like down to T. Everything was so well organized and orchestrated in my life. And she said, she shared this really beautiful set of anecdotes with me. She said, now when I go hiking, I'm just as likely to sit still feeling the breeze as I am Mm -hmm. to try and make the summit. Like she no longer makes five-year plans. She no longer even sees her heartbreak as a problem to solve. Instead, it's a process to experience. And that's a lesson for all of us who are, we instantly, and man, there's so many fun themes that are coming in and out of this conversation we're having, but we talked before about mindfulness and about using Mm -hmm. awe as this like hacky tool. And I think a lot of this comes from, you know, we live in a culture now where it's like, okay, problem, solution, problem, solution. How do I stop feeling negative emotions? How do I instantly terminate whatever negativity that I'm feeling? And Part of Florence's process, and I think there's a lot of wisdom in that, is actually just learning to embrace the experience for what it is and not have expectations about what success looks like on the other end. Wow, that that's really powerful. You know, it's like if you embrace the unknown, you can find unexpected reward in it. Beautifully right? said. Yes, yeah, exactly. Yeah. And you also talk about uh, relating to this, you talk about, you, you kind of describe it as paths rich with possibility, right? Yeah. Um, Give me some of that. <laughs> I, want, I want paths rich with possibility. That sounds good. Um, but there's these, there are these moments where you have no other choice but to change. Yeah. And if you do it with cognitive closure uh, versus you do it with this openness, the openness you're more likely to to find to discover those unexpected rewards. If you go in with the cognitive closure, yeah. you're actually like you're probably limiting yourself, right, from the possibilities. Yeah, it's it's like it's so beautifully said by you, yeah. and it's it's making me reflect. I think on the most personal way in which the reflections that my guests have shared with me on this show have impacted me on a personal level. So um, long story short, my husband and I have experienced multiple pregnancy losses with our surrogate. It's been a really challenging, difficult journey um, to become parents. And at the beginning of this whole experience, you know, I was like single-minded in my goal. It was like, I want to become a parent, you know? And you know, the first miscarriage happens and the second miscarriage happens. And all of a sudden you feel disoriented. And one thing that I ended up releasing um, an episode about this experience. So two days after we lost identical twin girls to a miscarriage, I actually recorded totally unexpectedly. Like, I'm glad I did it quickly after this happened or I probably would never have done it. But it was about two days after the loss. My producer interviewed me. The episode is called Maya slight change in plans. And I was I was really eager to do what my guests had done for me, which was to process my change out loud and see if there's any reflections that I could come up with that could be helpful to people. Because at the end of the day, I just wanted to turn this like super shitty situation into something that had some positive quality to it. And in the course of that conversation, I stumbled upon an insight that's just like what you were sharing is just really hitting home, which is in the process of this experience, I met this incredible, incredible human named Haley, who's our, who is our surrogate. She lives in Arkansas. She's a beautiful human. I don't even believe in souls, but like if souls existed, she has one. Okay. That's beautiful. Um, Haley was nurturing and kind and loyal 
and generous and so honest and straightforward. And I just felt moved by who she was as a person. And Mm. when we weren't successful in this journey with her, it was easy instinctively to feel regret. That's how I normally would have felt, right? Like there's some regret, like, oh my God, we just went through Mm. years of this and expended so many emotional resources and all we have is pain. And I found myself incapable of doing that with Haley because she was an unexpected gift that emerged along the way. And it was on me to make space for her to have been that beautiful ending, right? Mm -hmm. And so I stopped trying to see like a baby as being the outcome and allowed for the first time ever in my life to not see something as an outcome-oriented process, but to, Mm -hmm. again, build space and room and flexibility into my life such that I allowed this unexpected, beautiful gift of a lifelong friendship with Haley to come in and stay there and to mean something in its own right, to be valued in its own right. And I just don't think that I was that kind of person before. Like, I don't know if I would have had the internal wherewithal to to say, you know what? That relationship with Haley matters. That's important Mm -hmm. too. In fact, that's as important as reaching this end goal. And, you know, we're still not parents, but I feel like I have a much more, I I feel equanimity around it because I just feel a little bit less attached to outcomes. And obviously this comes from all the Buddhist philosophy back in the day, like they nailed it. They figured all this out, the recipe for happiness. Um, But it it takes a lot of trying in your own life to actually get to a point where you can detach yourself from things, the things that you want. And so again, it's been a it's been a learning experience for me, certainly, but I feel grateful to be in this position that I'm in right now because I, I never thought I could be the kind of person to get there. Thank you for sharing that, being vulnerable. And we talked about being open to changing your values. There are some things that you, that there's like a hierarchy of things that have become more and more difficult to change. And I would put almost at the top there, and I think it's what you're really talking about, not values, but dreams. Mm. What do you do when your life changes so much where you realize that all the dreams you had in your life, yeah. you know, there's a, there's a bigger word than just goal change. Yeah. I feel like there's something, dream change. Yeah. I feel like what you're illustrating is it's possible to still hold on to a dream, but it just takes a different form is that's, what I'm getting from That's exactly this. right. And I, it really goes back to this notion of identity because I think, I mean, there was no bigger dream that's more baked into my DNA than a desire to become a mom. I mean, from the time I was a little kid, I was with the play sets and I was having fictitious calls with my neighbors and I was telling them about my little kids. And anytime I was bullied at school or experienced anxiety when I was young, I always looked to the future as this refuge, right? Because I imagined Mm -hmm. this like idyllic, I mean, it was such a naive image of family life, but it was like perfect family, like, you know, two kids, a dog, the picket, white picket fence, the house, like that was always my my go-to place um, where I found so much meaning and purpose and excitement and um, again, an escape from painful times in my childhood. And so what's interesting now is we're figuring out, I mean, I'm certainly figuring out, okay, in the same way that for me, the reason I loved the violin was was a desire for human connection. I could find that elsewhere. I've just been asking myself why it is that I was craving becoming a parent. And can I achieve that in other areas of my life, right? Can I achieve that by like through mentorship? Can I achieve it through? I mean, there's there's also lots of ways to have a family, right? Yeah. And so it's just opened my mind. It's opened up my mind that maybe 
becoming a parent isn't the only expression of the things that I crave from parenthood, which is just like loving kids, <laughs> you know, and 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 seeing them thrive. You can still, yeah. yeah, you can find that in a lot of ways. So this is a very, this is very much a works in progress, Scott. Like these are thoughts that are actively going through my brain. My husband and I haven't figured anything out. We don't know what our next yeah. steps are. Again, there, there's so many uh, different paths to become, you know, to have, have children in your life, like fostering, yes. adoption, yeah, surrogacy, having kids through natural means. I mean, there's just like being an amazing aunt uh, to your nieces and nephews. I mean, there's just so many different paths to take. And it's really about exploring all of them. Explore all the paths rich with possibility. Yeah. Thank you, Maya, so much. I'm so glad we finally got you yeah, on the Psychology so, Podcast. As, and I'm honored expected, to know you. <laughs> uh, this was such an incredibly fun and thought-provoking conversation. So thank you, Scott. For me as well. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Psychology Podcast. If you'd like to react in some way to something you heard, I encourage you to join in the discussion at thepsychologypodcast.com or on our YouTube page, The Psychology Podcast. We also put up some videos of some episodes on our YouTube page as well, so you'll want to check that out. Thanks for being such a great supporter of the show, and tune in next time for more on the mind, brain, behavior, and creativity. The Elevation with Stephen Furtick podcast was created with you in mind. This is a podcast for those feeling discouraged or needing guidance from God. Together in this podcast, we'll dive deep into scripture, uncover the powerful truths that will help you rise above your limitations and embrace your full potential. We're here to equip you with the tools you need to conquer life's challenges. Listen to Elevation with Stephen Furtick every Sunday and Friday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Black Effect presents Family Therapy, and I'm your host, Elia Connie. Jay is the woman in this dynamic who is currently co-parenting two young boys with her former partner, David. David, he is a leader. He just don't want to leave me. But how do you lead a woman? How do you lead in a relationship? Like, what's the blueprint? David, you just asked the most important question. Listen to Family Therapy on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Oh, hi, I'm Rachel Zoe, and my podcast, Climbing in Heels, is back and better than ever. You might know me from the Rachel Zoe Project, or perhaps from my work as a celebrity stylist. And guess what? I'm still just as obsessed with all things fashion, beauty, and business. Climbing in Heels is all about celebrating the stories of extraordinary women, and this season is here to bring you a weekly dose of glamour, inspiration, and fun. Listen to Climbing in Heels every Friday on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.